Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. This hour of the Mark Reardon Show is sponsored by Gamma Tree Experts. Your trees deserve the best care. Call Gamma Tree Experts. Look, I think the best phrase is simple. It ain't working. The Mark Reardon Show. All of this woke world that we're living in right now is not working. Why are you guys bullying me? Mark Reardon. See, presidents can't do much. I'm done. Do what you want. Pull the plug. This is the Mark Reardon Show. You know, the other night I told you I went to uh, Chris in the Country's birthday party on Friday night at that Brewski's place. Yeah. And um, I was talking to this guy, and he was a listener, right? Mm-hmm. And he had heard Chris on the show, and we were talking. We had a great conversation, having a lot of fun, right? Just kind of shooting the you-know-what on a Friday night in St. Louis. And then at the end, he goes, what was your name again? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love that? He, I mean, That's he, hilarious. He, he listened. I know he, he listened. He just doesn't know who you are. Well, no. maybe it was on the sauce. Well, no, I don't think he was. No. You know, it's funny, though, because I, I think that this, this is something I have experienced over the decades in radio. When I was on WTMJ in Milwaukee, it was always, oh, yeah, that guy that's on the morning show or that guy that does the show whenever, right? And then when I started at KMOX, it was always, you're that guy that follows Rush. Yeah, people didn't know the name. Right. And we have to remember, I guess maybe I have to remember, Sue, that, that I've only been on this radio station for not even two years. Oh, that's true. Right? We're coming up on two years. That's so when true. people tune in from time to time, uh, they don't really know. And it bruises my ego. That guy that told me he didn't know my name. I know, yeah, it's hard it's to okay. believe, right? It's all right. All right, let's get going. I have so much good stuff today, like Ooh. things that I'm all kind of revved up about that I want to share. A lot of it is audio related, and I might get started with that here in just a moment. Let me just point toward the um, 325 segment with Robert Bryce. Robert Bryce wrote a great piece called The Billionaires Behind the Gas Bans, The Hypocrisy of the Billionaires Who Are Funding the Anti-Hydrocarbon Campaigns. All this nonsense you're hearing from your lefty friends about how they don't really want to ban gas stoves is a bunch of BS, and Robert has done an outstanding job at connecting the dots with some of this stuff because, as you know, one of the things you always have to do in government in particular is follow the money. So he's coming up here. We have Kilmeade in the next hour after what I'm sure will be a legendary edition of Sue's News. Um, Josh Hammer and Hammer Time, the opinion editor for Newsweek, will be here. And I'm going to take some calls. I played this, I think, yesterday. The, um, the Surgeon General, Sue, See if I have this still. I should have it because we're going to talk about it tonight. Maybe I don't. Uh, saying, look, if you're 13 years old or younger, you should not be on social media. And I want to test that. I get that. I really I do. Too. I mean, I think that's rational. <clears throat> well, I'm going to take some calls about that later. 
which is always a little risky just because if everyone agrees with me, no one might call. But I still I have some interesting things to, to say about okay. that, so we'll get to that. But let me start with some audio here just because there are things that are on my mind. Let's start with football because we're two weeks away from the Super Bowl, and I can't even believe that this is an issue. But this shows you how crazy people are on social media. And they're crazy on both sides. Let me just be clear. They're, they're like the Paul Pelosi stuff. People are crazy on both sides. All the, uh, the VAC stuff. There's people that you know, have common sense opinions about all this. And then there's people that are crazy on both sides. And this is one where I guess people feel like they have to be crazy. This is Tony Romo. Did you watch the game? I did. Okay. So there was a point where Tony Romo said this during the Chiefs game the other afternoon. Or evening, I guess it was, because um, it was like a 5.30 start. Yeah, was- the extra yards, the tough yards, the finish on the play. Right there, you got three. And th- you talked about it. This is the best tackling team. They don't miss tackles. People are alleging that Tony Romo was about to say there are three N-words, right? Now, I'm going to play it to you again. I think he was Come saying— Come on. It's utter—what in the world would—and and and if now- you look at— There's a bunch of Twitter, you know— strings on this thing. Oh, oh, come on. Tony Romo has some splaining to do. Tony, you racist, you white supremacist, you were about to drop the N-word on national TV. You know it. And there are people that are going to believe that this happened. Now, I'll play it to you again. You can see, I think he was going to say missed tackles. So listen for missed tackles. Tough yards, the finish on the play. Right there, you got three. And th- you talked about it. This is the best. Yeah, three. You got three. And th- you talked about it. This is the best. I mean, I'm a person who talks for a living, and you say things that slip out sometimes, and oh, you I'm the stop queen yourself. of it. The queen of but it. But in the social media era, that's exactly what you have. Let's go to Chicago. I'm going to do a little round robin on this stuff here this afternoon. Did you see the video of Lori Lightfoot who was dancing in the streets? Oh, dear. Over the weekend, and she's got, you know, there, there aren't very many cities on the planet that are more crime-ridden than St. Louis, but she runs one of them. So this guy, I don't know this guy, Gianno Caldwell, he's an anchor up there at Fox 2 in Chicago, goes off on this. I take great offense to this. My brother, my baby brother Christian, was murdered on June 24th last year in Chicago. And what I just witnessed in that video with that mayor right there was her dancing on my brother's grave. There's so many victims of violent crime in the city of Chicago, so many people who don't even know how to pay for a funeral because they're so costly. How dare her do that to those families? It is ridiculous beyond measure. The only solace that I can take from this moment is the fact that she may not be mayor in the next two months. Wow. Uh, yeah, wow. there was a mayoral election going on, but she, he was very angry about that. And then there's Whoopi Goldberg saying stupid things on national TV. When will the brutality finally lead to some police reform from the ground up because clearly it doesn't matter if it's a white policeman or a black policeman it is a problem in the police and the policing yeah. itself you know seems things don't seem to make sense to people unless it's somebody they can feel or they can recognize mm-hmm. but how many times do we have to do we need to see white people also get beaten before anybody will do anything i'm not suggesting that so don't write us and tell me what a you know what a racist I am. Well, it was a dumb comment, but let me let me kind of address what she's saying there because one of the things that I've seen repeatedly, and this happens when you have national tragedies and you have things that are on video in particular, everyone gets all worked up about it, justifiably so in this particular case because it's very confusing. And I said this yesterday, and we might have Jazz Shaw from Hot Air on tomorrow. Jazz wrote a piece, and 
Most of you should know, even if you don't know my name, that I'm not very conspiratorial. And Jazz wrote this piece saying, and Zig and I, John Ziegler and I kind of talked about it over the weekend. I feel like there's a part of that story that's missing. Not from the standpoint that the dude deserved the whaling. All right? I don't want to be misunderstood. But from the standpoint, what led to the whaling? What was it that we're missing here that might explain a couple of the pieces before they started beating on him? Maybe that doesn't matter. I, I don't know. But what I'm saying is there's parts of that whole story that are missing. And there are reporters who are not asking any for any explanation. You're, so, you're wondering why they were so ramped up about it. Is that well, it? Well, because it was it was deemed it was described as a, a traffic stop, right? Well, they were on a special task force, right? What, what mm-hmm. were they doing? And did they just say, "Hey, that guy ran a red light. Let's go get him"? Doesn't make sense. There's no. something more to this story. I don't think it's anything that's going to lead to the um, innocence of these police no, officers. I'm not, not saying that. But what I'm saying is. Reporters need to do their jobs when it comes to some of these things. And, you know, you just accept the narrative and maybe there's a little bit more there there. And maybe we should know about that. Maybe it's going to make the cops look worse, which is fine if that's what happens. I just I just think that some of these questions need to be um, asked. I thought this was fascinating. You know who Zachary Levi is? I do not. Zachary Levi is an actor. And I saw the um, I saw the. The trailer, hang on, I'm going to pull him up here because he was in Shazam. Did you ever see Shazam? Uh, not since I was. No, no, like the newer Shazam. <laughs> no, the new I know, Shazam. You, you probably no. go back. So the newer Shazam from, and I can't even say the word, was pretty, pretty good. It was very funny. A lot of levity that. Well, I just saw, and they aired this during the football game, one of the football games, I think it was during the Chiefs game, the new Shazam movie comes out. There's a sequel coming out in the next couple of months. And one of the things that was great about um, Shazam was Zachary Levi, this actor who was in one of the um, one of the seasons of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You might know him from other things. But he had a tweet, and there's been, now I just Googled this, and we got a St. Louis that's involved in this. All right, Let me bring it full circle here, because James Gunn, who is the new co-head of DC Studios, was asked to weigh in on this during a press event on the Warner Brothers lot. I did not know that James Gunn was the new head of DC Studios. That's fascinating to me. Um, Yeah, I didn't know that. So Zachary Levi responded to a Twitter user who wrote this. Do you agree or not that Pfizer is a real danger to the world? Zachary Levi posted, hardcore agree. So people are like, oh, he's an anti-vaxxer, right? And now that you have Shazam, Fury of the Gods coming up there, people are taking aim at Zachary Levi, and they're asking, you know, James Gunn whether or not he needs to distance himself. And he says, just real simply, actors and filmmakers that I work with are going to say things that I agree with and things that I don't agree with, and that's going to happen, and I don't have a list of things that somebody should say because of what I think. And, you know, I can't be changing my plans all the time because an actor says something that I don't agree with. By the same token, if somebody's doing something morally reprehensible, that's a different story. We have to take all that stuff into account. It's a balance. It's a modern world and it's a different place. And of course, James Gunn has been a guy who's been targeted for things that he has said or written in the past, which were just deemed jokes. And I think they were jokes, maybe not so funny in retrospect. And he apologized. And luckily, he got his career back because he was, you know, someone who was on the cut. He got fired from the second Guardians movie. And they gave him the gig back. I do find that interesting that he's the DC Studios guy now. Anyway, so the, the, The question was, do you agree or not that Pfizer is a real danger to the world? Zachary Levi tweets out, hardcore agree. And then there's that little, uh, it's not a smiley face emoji. It's an emoji like with a flat uh, smile saying, "Mm," you know, like Mm -hmm. one of those. So, you know, TMZ and Harvey Levin and and that whole show. So Harvey Levin and TMZ reporter talking about this. This is interesting. Why can't people express their opinions anymore? This is ridiculous. Because, uh, uh, hold on. 
I have been vaccinated, double vaxxed, triple vaxxed, and quadruple vaxxed. Okay, so I've been vaccinated. That's Harvey Levin saying. Now, he's kind of sticking up for, for Zachary Levi here. Now, this is in Hollywood. You have to remember the context yeah. of this, yeah. right? That said... I gotta tell you, when COVID was happening and all the scientists are on TV saying, you gotta get the shot, you won't get COVID if you get the shot, that's not true. You've gotta wash all of the, you know, um, the. Okay, the that turned the, out to not be true. Th- right. There are a lot Nothing of things true. that they said as fact that were not necessarily so. And I think when you understand the facts evolve. When you're dealing with with a, 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 as fa- in science, it's one thing. You're dealing with a virus thing. that they never dealt with. Before. I got it. To say facts fa- evolve. Facts evolve, but you don't make definitive statements until you know, and they have evolved, and there were definitive statements made. I believe in the vaccine. I want to say that, but at the same time, you know, the, the, we're not lemmings. And and again, I, I Bill Maher talks about this better than me. But when he talks about the fact that I know science, there was a Bill Maher reference. Well, it's coming true up. because scientists don't know everything and, and it was put out no one's saying it that was they put do. out too strong so his woke reporters are kind of pushing back at him zach not zachary levi uh harvey is absolutely right about this and i think and i'm taking this position some people might not be happy with it but i do think you could be someone who believed that the vaccines may have saved a lot of lives but that they were oversold and that perhaps they're dangerous to some people and there's questions that need to be answered so these little vaccine things are, are leaking out here and there and there's more of them. Let me give you an example. This is something that happened with John McEnroe and Chris Fowler. I watched the Australian Open quite a bit because of the timing of the uh, championships. Yeah. They were on really early in the right. morning. I didn't get to see them live. But here's McEnroe and Chris Fowler talking about this because, of course, Djokovic, who wins the Australian Open, was banned from that last year. They wouldn't let him play at the That's U.S. Right. Open because of all the Vax stuff. But listen to this. He got defaulted in the Open when he hit the, the uh That's McEnroe. He gets deported out of Australia. Doesn't get any points at Wimbledon. Can't play the Open. His choices, to be fair, he he made choices that led to that. Some of those things. I don't think he. I I think he should have committed to play. Okay. Well, that's a that's a debate. He he did make choices that led to that. But that's forgot for the moment. All right, so Chris Fowler's like playing woke sports journalist guy because I've told you there's like a some sort of club that they have where you you have to be completely woke if you're in sports journalism. And McEnroe's saying, look, it was ridiculous that what the things that happened to Novik Djokovic, right? Can we not admit that? And yeah. Fowler's trying to play the other side, which is ridiculous. Then there's uh, Victoria Azarenka, who's from Belarus, I believe. Do you know? Is she from Belarus? I believe she is. I think so. So I think that's uh, right. she was asked because w- when these athletes are asked all these questions, about you know what happened in their um, tournament, they're not asked about that anymore. They're asked about politics and Russia and oh, all these for things. Heaven's and sake. I thought that Victoria Azarenka did an outstanding job here of navigating this. Does it frustrate you that, um, you know, particularly last night, for example, it was a clear sort of pro-Russian demonstration happening within the grounds of the tournament. That these people are coming and using the Australian Open as a platform for this, these kind of demonstrations. Frustrate you? She's going to answer here, but she's frustrated not by the things that the reporter is pointing out, but by the reporter. Uh, I, whatever the answer I'm going to give it to you right now, it's going to be turned whichever way you want to turn it to. So, does it bother me? What bothers me is. Um, there's real things that's going on in the world, 
And I don't know, are you a politician? Are you? Are you covering politics? Yes, and I'm a sports, and I'm an athlete, and you're asking me about things that maybe somebody says are in my control, but I don't believe that. So I don't know what you want me to answer. And if it's a provocative question, then, you know, you can, you can spin the story however you want. Yeah, I love that because that's and, great. Uh, I hope more of these athletes push back on some Why of this nonsense. Why would you even well, ask? Because that's what they feel. Again, this is the woke world of sports journalism. They feel it's their role to save the world. And then one more story here that is not really related, but it is mind-boggling. And it's really, it's funny. It's not funny. Uh, the way that this was positioned on OutKick today was we're only one month into 2023, but we've already got our basketball story of the year. So check this out. 22-year-old assistant high school basketball coach was um, with this team in Virginia, Churchland High School. This is a reporter out there telling this story. I'll let him tell the story. Last Friday, we received an email from the mother of a player on the Churchland High School girls JV basketball team that an assistant coach on the team named Arlisha Boykins impersonated a 13-year-old player on the team that was out of town. Uh, Arlisha is apparently a 22-year-old young woman going up against 14- and 15-year-old girls. Now, we what? have confirmed that Boykins is no longer an employee of Portsmouth Public Schools. And since this game, the student athletes on the team and parents decided to just end the season. They will not be playing any more games this year. Portsmouth Public Schools did launch an investigation into this matter. The details have not been revealed by officials quite yet. All right, so did you get that? What? That Okay, so... <laughs> The reporter there, give credit, Craig Looper, Craig Looper II, Wavy TV out there in Virginia. Uh, they were, they actually had six players, okay? Okay. So they were down to six players, but there was one kid that was sick, right? So the, these were 13-year-old girls. The assistant coach, who was 22 years old, decided, I'm going to lace them up and play with the 13-year-olds. What? And if you see the video, oh, yeah, she's blocking shots. Oh she's going across the court. And I think she got a triple-double. I'm not sure. But, man, <laughs> and they caught her, and the coach is no longer there. And, unfortunately, That's they canceled so the season. That's so crazy. I mean, all the kids knew, too, right? There's some shining example of excellence in <laughs> our schools, ladies and gentlemen. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got 
got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. We have Sue's News coming up in the next hour. Of course, Brian Kilmeade, his weekly visit. Also, um, Josh Hammer, the opinion editor for Newsweek in the 5 o'clock hour. We have talked a lot about climate change and all the nonsense that goes on out there about that. And then, of course, we had that story from a couple of weeks ago with gas stoves. And, you know, there, there was there's always uh, uh, more than a hint, I think, of reality and truth to stories like that that leak out. I mean, was that a trial balloon from our government? Maybe it was. But then, of course, everything kind of turned in the direction of, well, the right and the wacky conservatives are trying to lie to you about gas stoves. Robert Bryce is with me this afternoon. He wrote a piece on Substack that caught my attention that was called The Billionaires Behind the Gas Bans, the Hypocrisy of the Billionaires Who Are Funding the Anti-Hydrocarbon Campaigns, uh, including bans on gas stoves. And he did a great job kind of digging into some of this stuff. Robert, how are you? Welcome to 97.1 FM Talk. Thanks for being with you. I'm glad to be with you, Mark. Thanks. Well, first and foremost, we should um, we should make it clear, I think, that th- this is something that, that is real, right? They've talked, and you document a lot of this stuff here, where there are groups that have talked about gas homes or stoves and gas homes and things and how dangerous they are, right? Well, yes, and this, this, this idea has been pushed now for right about three years. It began in about 2020, about the same time that this new group called Climate Imperative was formed. And as I point out, and thanks for pointing it out in that, in that piece on Substack, on robertbryce.substack.com, where is where the piece is, that th- this group was formed Climate Imperative. And I saw a news, a little short little news piece about it in late 2021 saying they were going to have a budget of $1 billion over five years. I mean, this is a massive amount of money. And oh, my God. I mean, I one of the groups behind this. I can't even believe it. So the numbers are really staggering. You say that this group, the Climate Imperative Foundation, took in $221 million in the first year of operation. That means that that group, less than three years old, I think this does put it into perspective, is taking in more cash than the Sierra Club, which has built itself for years as the largest and most influential environmental organization, right? So where that begs the question, who's behind this? Where's the money coming from? Well, and that's the part that, to me, so this group, I asked them several times, where's the money coming from? Who are you funding? They wouldn't reply. But in doing my reporting on it, it appears that there are two main funders. One is John Doerr, who's a venture capitalist based in Silicon Valley. 
and the other is Laureen Powell Jobs, who's, of course, Steve Jobs' widow. And apparently they are the ones who are putting up the bulk of this money on the order of $200 million a year. And just to put it into perspective, Mark, $221 million at a stroke. This group is almost as big as the American Petroleum Institute, which has been around, of course, for more than a century, has a budget of, I think, $240, $250 million. I mean, the the amount of, you know, we hear over and over, oh, these right-wing groups are spending, so the Koch brothers, blah, 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 blah. The reality is that these NGO, climate NGOs, they're outspending the uh, traditional energy associations by at least three to one, and the real number may be quite much, quite a bit larger. So, Robert, you wrote in that piece, you said the emergence of climate imperative, which I think you said you've been kind of tracking this for a couple of years now, which has received virtually no attention from legacy media, is important for several reasons. Why is it important? Well, it, one, it, it shows that point that I just made that that in fact the vast majority of the money, the media, and the momentum is on the left, not on the right. I mean, it's just just not even close. But second, I think it shows that this effort toward these gas bans, uh, it's not just gas stoves. It's to force electrification of your water heater, your clothes dryer, uh, you know, your your furnace elimination of all of those and forced electrification. That this has been part of a multi-year a lavishly funded campaign that Climate Imperative, the Sierra Club, Rocky Mountain Institute have all been coordinating this. This isn't new. This has been happening for a long time. And, you know, just in a pure politics standpoint, looking at it as a reporter, the whole entire oil and gas industry, they've been so backfooted. I mean, they're just getting their butts kicked on this whole thing. I don't know what hit them. I guess not. So when did you, you – it's interesting to me because – and I don't know if I'm going to have time to do it this hour. I have a real interesting piece from this guy Derek Thompson at The Atlantic, and I've described The Atlantic this way. A couple years ago, I uh, was trying to go to different sites. You know, this was at the beginning of the pandemic, and whenever I would click on something from The Atlantic, I'd get, you know, the paywall. So I spent my 40 bucks or whatever, and I subscribed to The Atlantic. Now, there is probably maybe 5% of the Atlantic content that I agree with. I like that Derek Thompson guy, and he wrote a piece that was very interesting about obesity, which I was going to highlight today. But you kind of said that the Atlantic has sort of strung some of these gas stove stories together. There's been a bit of a pattern there, right? Well, it was one of the, I mean, I remember it because it was one of the first of the big media outlets where I saw an article saying gas stoves are bad for you. And I thought, well, that was odd because this was back in 2020. Right. And I also note in the Substack piece that just two years earlier, they'd run a piece that's saying how great it was that cooks could have open flames in their kitchen and how this was a revolution. Right. But no, in 2020, right at about the time that RMI and the Sierra Club were launching this campaign, the Atlantic carried this article about the dangers of gas stoves. And maybe it's coincidence, but the Atlantic is owned by Lorene Powell Jobs. Yeah, it's not coincidence. Let's let's just be honest. It's not coincidence. One of the questions about that that I think you address in the piece is, is there any truth to the claim that all this childhood asthma is um, due to gas stoves or a, a you know large portion of it? No. And that's one of the other things that is just so remarkable is that these claims are getting this traction in The Washington Post, among other places, right, well, a few weeks ago, as you pointed out. The definitive study was published in Lancet, one of the Lancet publications, in, I think, in 2013. Half a million children were studied in, I think, four dozen different countries over a multi-year period. Questionnaires were given to their mothers to fill out. And the conclusion of that study, which, again, the definitive study on respiratory issues and, and, and gas stoves, found no connection between gas stoves and asthma. And yet the Rocky Mountain Institute 
has a budget of $140 million in the latest reporting period, has been pushing this claim now for years. There, this is this is junk science. I, I don't take any pleasure in saying this, but I think that's exactly the right term. And if you connect the dots further on the money, Jeff Bezos' name comes into this as well, right? Well, sure. Bezos has given, through the Bezos Earth Fund, he uh, gave $100 million to the NRDC. He gave, uh, I think it was $10 million to the Rocky Mountain Institute. The money that that $100 million to NRDC, the NRDC in their own press release said they were going to use to uh, restrict or reduce oil and gas production in the United States. I mean, what, Mark, what we're seeing here, and I, again, this is, I'm just doing this as a reporting thing. I don't, I'm not a partisan. No, I get it. I don't even consider myself necessarily conservative, but the money that is being spent by these billionaires and by these NGO groups to try to restrict the amount of energy that ordinary consumers can use, and in fact is a regressive tax on the poor and the middle class, it's unprecedented in, in, in American history, the amount of money that is going toward this effort. Yeah, look, address a little bit more here, and I want to talk about the hypocrisy of the billionaires because they're the people flying around the big planes and everything, but kind of, uh, you just mentioned this, the the regressive nature of gas bans and and what that means for consumers. Explain that a little bit more. Sure. Okay, not my numbers. These are numbers from the Department of Energy. Last March in the Federal Register, the Department of Energy published uh, average cost of residential energy sources. Natural gas was by far the cheapest, far cheaper than using electricity on a per million BTU basis. In October, the Department of Energy, through the Energy Information Administration, published their winter fuels outlook. Their numbers again showed that heating with home heating with gas or I'm sorry, I'll put it a different way, that heating with electricity instead of gas in the home would cost 46% more. Natural gas in the home for resident, the average residential consumers across the country is by far the cheapest way to heat your home. And even better, it's even better for uh, climate change because using the gas directly is far more efficient than using it indirectly by turning it into electricity and then using the electricity as the end fuel. So there are real problems here, and, and the hypocrisy of the billionaires who are funding it is you know, only part of it. Yeah, they're flying. And Lorene Powell Jobs flies around in a jet that buys, burns 500 gallons of jet fuel per hour. Yeah, come on, right? And then Mike Bloomberg is another one. You see, he owns eight houses in New York State alone and properties in London, Florida, Colorado, and Bermuda. Right. So uh, I'm guessing there's some gas stoves in there and I'm guessing he doesn't walk to all those locations when he travels around. <laughs> right. Think? Or take the he takes think? the EV plane, I'm guessing. Right. I don't know. <laughs> well, and that was it. it was a great piece of Vanity Fair. It was in 2020. And it talked about how the, when Bloomberg was the mayor of New York, he would fly to Bermuda for the weekend. Well, you know, of course, oh, I do the same, you know, and I'm sure you do as well. Oh, I, yeah, you, of course. You know, you're a hacienda down over yours is in the Bahamas. But. But, I mean, you know, come on. I mean, this is the guy who's given $500 million to the Beyond Carbon campaign. Much of that money is being spent by the Sierra Club to further the, their their uh, jihad against natural gas, coal-fired generation, to, to, to prevent consumers from u- directly using natural gas in their homes. So, yeah. I mean, I just find the hypocrisy. This really is staggering. Robert, did you see that this kind of ties in? Did you see the uh, the, the speech that uh, Constantine Kissin did at the Oxford Union a few weeks ago? Oh, yes. kind of t- I mean, that was brilliant, wasn't it? Oh, it was so good. I think I watched it two or three times. I thought, man, this guy just nails it. And he nailed it in such 
the way he kind of tossed it off, Mark, you know, just kind of so casual. You know, it, was, it wasn't just the way, you know, what he said, but the style that he did, that he used with it. I just thought, man, this guy's a master. Yeah, I, well, he amazing. used humor. He used humor also. But, you know, one of the things that I loved about that, and you addressed this in your piece here, this is why I wanted to kind of have you focus in on it, is with, with climate change in particular, I've said this for years, and no one ever wants to talk about it, not the do-gooders out there in, in the media and certainly not some of the folks that you just wrote about, but the effect that that all of these efforts have on poor people that would love to have gas stoves or electricity so they could have air conditioning and their quality of life would be better, right? And that was part of the point that Constantine Kissin was brilliantly making a couple of weeks ago. Well, yes. I mean, and this is the part that, you know, we're, we're having this big debate around natural gas-fired stoves in the United States. So just for, for, for perspective here, Mark, natural gas stoves burn four-tenths of one percent of all the gas consumed in America. And yet this guy from our Rocky Mountain Institute claimed, oh, well, these stove emissions, these are a key part of climate change. What are you talking about? I mean, that's just blatant falsehood. And further, that when you look around the world, and this is part of my latest, my latest book, A Question of Power, there are three billion people in the world today who use less electricity, live in places where consumption of electricity is less than what's uh, consumed by an average kitchen refrigerator in, in the United States, 1,000 kilowatt hours per capita per year. So in a world where energy poverty is rampant, we're having this massive debate debate and convulsions around cooking with gas i mean it it's 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 decadent i think honestly i think there's a certain decadence to where we are as a society absolutely robert bryce great stuff i really appreciate it um my notes here say that you have something called the power hungry podcast there's nothing more that i love to do as a terrestrial radio guy than to promote podcasts so i will (laughs) i will i will let you do it here what's the podcast about it's, uh, it's energy, power, innovation, and politics, and that's the same tagline that I use for my Substack. So uh, I've asked people to sign up for my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com. Don't you love Substack? Isn't it great? You know, I just switched. I I was on Mailchimp, and they effectively forced me out. And I, Substack has been fantastic. I'm, it's all free now. I think I'm going to keep it free for the rest of the year, and then maybe go to a paid model. But uh, I really enjoy it. And this piece has gone viral. I've had over 50,000 views of this piece, The Billionaires Behind the Gas Bands. I'm just thrilled with it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I think a lot of the, the better journalism is going on right now. And, and, you know, Barry and Abigail Schreier have done a great job with that. Robert Bryce, appreciate it. We'll talk again. Thank I, you, I sir. love having you on. Yeah, thank you. I was going to save this for after four, right before Sue's News, but because I'm going to talk about um, obesity here and uh, losing weight, I thought I'd do this right now. You know, Todd Blackstock was in on Friday, who was a classmate at Parkway West. We were both oh, class yeah. of 1983 with Chip Carey, the there new announcer. A- yeah, the Cardinals. So he got me onto this Facebook page that they have for, I, I think it's for 1977 through 87 for people who went to Parkway West. Gotcha. So somebody, I don't know who, and I wish they wouldn't have done this, posted like a part of the um, of the yearbook with pictures. Look at that fat face there in the middle, Mark Reardon, 1983. I don't know if I would even have known that right. was you. I know, right? Isn't that Holy crazy? Cow. Should I... Should I put that up on the Twitter so people can see yeah, it? Yeah, it's entertaining. It, I'll hold it up to the camera there. Can people see it if I hold it up to the camera? And that is well. well I weighed, tweet it out. I, I weighed two hundred five or two hundred eight pounds, I think, at my. Aww. But you know what else? You know what Abby said about this? You notice something different than you would see these days? Besides a tie? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, everyone's wearing a tie. Like, yeah, had, I had well, a we suit were. On. Yes, we had uh, that's back then. We what dressed we it wore. up, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but look, I. <laughs> It's a true story. I've explained it before. There's nothing more complicated and wild. How'd you lose all that weight? Well, I went to Spain 40 years ago. I'm going to Spain here in a couple of months with listeners, mm-hmm. right? 1983, mm-hmm. went to Spain. 
lived with a family uh, for a little bit, was nervous, walked a lot, didn't like the food, lost some weight, came yeah. back, was was going to Mizzou. That was my senior year, so I graduated, I was going to go to Mizzou. I was quite horrified that I would never have sex again, so I <laughs> lost a bunch of weight. And because of that, you know, I'm always self-conscious about it and... Um, it's something I've always thought of, and I, I had a 36-inch waist, and I vowed to never go back up to a 36-inch waist, and I've kept that promise. I got okay. The, I got the 34 a couple of times. Yeah, that might be life. a little too. Well, it, it's okay. Whatever works We're for a, you. Like a lean, mean 31, 32 right now. Oh, no, right? Okay. And you might make the case that I'm probably a little bit too skinny, but some of that is because that's, of my, my yes. brain, right? That's Just what I works. figure, so okay. I leave you alone. Right, exactly. So, But, you know, I'm, I'm pumping iron now, so you got to appreciate that. I forget that. that yes. But Derek Thompson at The uh, Atlantic wrote this piece about all this weight loss stuff that's going on out there. And he said, and this was rather stark, I thought, my man, how the obesity pills, the new obesity pills, could upend American society. So I'm like, whoa, i got to go into this, right? And I think he does make some interesting points here. And he gives a little history. He says, about a decade ago, Susan Yanakovsky, or Yanovsky, an obesity researcher at the National Institute of Health, the NIH, held a symposium to discuss a question that bedeviled her field. Why was it so hard to develop weight loss drugs that actually worked and didn't harm people they were meant to help? For years... The most popular weight loss pills had earned their stigma. For example, the drug cocktail known as Fenfen was taken off the market for causing heart disease, almost as reliably as it promoted healthy weight loss. Hey, that sounds like a certain vaccine, I know. The only intervention that seemed to work consistently was bariatric surgery, right? This is what happened with Al Roker. I am not pro any of this. All but right, yes. But, but I think you'll appreciate what he's saying here, okay? So doctors would slice into patients' digestive system to reduce stomach size, slow the absorption of nutrients to stave off feelings of hunger, but the operations were expensive and complicated, and there were risks involved, right? So this researcher was looking for a breakthrough. She wanted the effects of bariatric surgery without the surgery. So the uh, miracle drug that everyone was looking for at the time was not in existence, although maybe it was, but they weren't looking in the right place. So in the early 2010s, the Danish pharmaceutical company Novo Nordisk developed a medication called semi-glutude for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And I may be mispronouncing some of this stuff, so bear with me. It was approved by the FDA as an injectable called, now you're going to know this one, ready? Ozempic. You've seen the ads for Ozempic. The company soon realized that patients on Ozempic reported significant weight loss as a side effect. Novo Nordisk ran further trials on the drug and discovered that it was, in fact, associated with less hunger and food cravings. They released the drug. They re-released it for weight loss under a new name, Wegovy, W-E-G-O-V-Y. Ozempic, Wegovy, and other drugs represent the vanguard of weight loss and the revolution. Last year, Yanofsky attended a conference in San Diego on the results of the new Novo Nordisk trial for adolescents and teens with severe obesity. The hotel ballroom was standing room only, according to the uh, journal Nature that wrote about this. And the results of the trial were met with cheers, like you were at a Broadway show. After a year, young patients on semi-gluten or semi-glutide said that they lost 35 pounds on average. Teens on the placebo gained weight. So they think this thing is working, right? So was this it? Was this the breakthrough? Well, in fact, they think it was. And Thompson's point is like, look, the weight loss medication has grown and the U.S. is in this early stage of a drug boom. One story you could tell about these drugs is that they represent a watershed moment for scientific discovery. In a country where each generation has been more overweight than the one that came before it, a marvelous medication seemed to fall out of the sky. But, but... Just months into this weight loss drug bonanza, a range of medical culture and political challenges has materialized. Doctors are reporting 
Now, this won't surprise you either. Let me just pose it as a question. Who's using these weight loss drugs? What do you mean, men or women or? A class of people. Oh, I don't know. people. People of means. Because these things cost money. So basically, doctors say that this is among the very rich. The surge of off-label use of Ozempic is creating a shortage of the medication for people with type 2 diabetes. Because now that celebrity skinniness is merely an injection away, online thin culture has returned, likely exacerbating, and that's not a good thing, right? So they're, they're a miracle drug, but they're also a menace. And I think this is what happens with a lot of medications. So he, he kind of writes about this and in, in some of the statistics here are very, very stark. More than 40% of U.S. adults, 20% of children are considered obese. 40% plus Oof. of adults in this country. And they face elevated risk for type 2 diabetes, heart disease, liver disease, cancers, along with mobility issues associated with being overweight. And he points out that during the pandemic, obesity may have tripled the risk of hospitalization with a COVID infection. We don't talk about that very much, right? Tripled the risk of hospitalization. Among women living in poverty, in particular, obesity rates are higher. And, you know, then you get into the what have doctors done over the years. They've encouraged people to begin with diet and exercise. Now, one of the main points of Derek Thompson's piece in The Atlantic is uh, – we're not even going to address behavioral challenges anymore, right? So they used to start with that. Let's see if we can change the diet. Let's see if we can exercise. Let's see if we can do positive things. Uh -uh, Not anymore. Now it's just, oh, let's give you the weight loss drug. Uh Ozempic and Wagovi can cost roughly $1,000 or more for people trying to lose weight. Most insurance companies do not cover weight loss medication. In the U.S., he says, racial and ethnic minorities and low-income Americans have higher rates of diabetes and obesity. But because they cost $12,000 a year or more without insurance coverage, and that's not even counting higher prices on the black market, the drug's first clientele would be the richest Americans, not the poorest. Now, this is the Atlantic. Okay, you got to remember, this is the Atlantic. So they're going to play the class warfare game as much as right. they can because there are a bunch of lefties over there. But I don't think that the points are invalid here. I mean, if we're trying to do something to help people in this country and the obesity. Um, and this was the big story. You and I talked about it a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, we did. You know, the obesity epidemic, you have these new drugs, there's going to be miracle cures. Well, not likely, I think. And, you know, he says this, this will scramble our relationship with the basic concept of willpower in ways that aren't cleanly good or bad. How long should doctors recommend they press forward with diet and exercise? I think that that's going to wane because they're going to yeah. say, hey, we got this medication and I can uh, make money from the medication. It's um, it's not a good situation, no. I don't think, overall. Second hour coming up. Get more at 971talk.com. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.